This podcast is proudly brought to you by Sky Racing and Ingress, number one in its field. A great privilege to bring Danny Brereton back to our podcast for part two of an interview I've been wanting to do for a long, long time. Well, Dan, you were just out of your time when you rode a horse past two legendary figures one morning at the track, namely Ian Saunders and the veteran jockey Kevin Mitchell, who was still going strong at that stage. They made a humorous remark as you rode by. Yes, they did. I just, just, yeah, just turned twenty-one. Um, to my time, I was. I never was a leading apprentice, champion apprentice in Melbourne, um, but I was. Uh, I was one, two, three most of the years. No, not so two, three, four most of the years. So mm-hmm. I um, forget who early on was the leading apprentice, but um, I, we had some great apprentices at our school around like that that, that era. But the problem was we were up against. Um, a legend. Um, he was although a year, but a year, a year younger than us, but he he kept us all starving. Was Darren Gauchy because once he once he uh, started riding, every apprentice was his second best. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, no two ways of putting it. So, um, so yeah, I was I, I did did well in my apprenticeship without but I could never be a champion apprentice while he was riding. Over the years, Dan, I've spoken to a lot of jockeys who regarded Darren Gauchy as their role model. He was unique, particularly as an apprentice. He had amazing poise, amazing balance, and horses just loved him. Uh, look, I've never witnessed anything like it. He 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 was the Jeff Lane of the era. Probably um, no, he was the only. I think he was the only apprentice to outright his claim of being champion jockey and apprentice at the same time since Jeff Lane. Mm. Um, it was it was just an amazing thing that happened. Darren Gouch, I think he. I think his first ride was at Bansdale, and it just seemed like overnight he was riding in Melbourne Cups and winning Oaks and Derbies mm. overnight. The, the next week, it was just an, a meteoric rise. It was. Um, I've never witnessed anything like it again either. To be honest, he, it's just incredible. The the talent he must have had was um, incredible. Um, yeah, it's, um, I've ne- I've never seen anything like it. When you started riding for Ian Saunders, Kevin Mitchell was right alongside you most mornings. You had a, yeah, a great that, time, and, and what a great mentor he must have been. Yeah, that's the that story of you alluded to before. I was walking off the track, and I was riding a bit of work for Bob and a bit of work for Rick Lacey at the time, and um, Ian and Kevin went the gap, and as I stated before, I used to work for Ian as a um, school kid. Doing well, but um, he never gave me a ride all through my apprenticeship, which I felt I felt strange and I felt a bit off about it. All. I thought, well, we're good mates, you know. Mm. And um, he made the comment with Kevin. He said, "Well, what are you doing?" I said, "I'm just riding through work here and there." And he said, "Well, it's about time you come round and we teach you how to ride." <laughs> and I said, you, "I said you kind of what?" Yeah. <laughs> and he said, "Come round here and stick your head in, and we'll teach you how to ride properly." Mm. <laughs> and I took 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 my so a bit of offence to that. I heard, yeah. but I'll give it a go. That one fell and, flat. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, I, Kevin Mitchell was standing beside him, who I idolised. I thought Kevin Mitchell was just one of the best horsemen in Australia. Um, and so so was Ian Saunders. To do, to say, mm. uh, also. And um, so I poked my head in there, and uh, within a few months, um, I had great success. Um, 
we had a little horse come along called Gallipoli Prince. And um, at the time, Kevin was riding Pete Cheval. Mm. And um, Darren Murphy also uh, was there at the same time. And Skinny had, at those days, he probably had 25, 30 horses. He was known as a fair-sized trainer back in those days. Mm. Um, and he shared out those horses between three jockeys. We basically made three of us stable jockeys. And mm. we had a really harmonious working partnership, uh, Kevin, Darren, although Kevin was winding down a little bit at the time. And it was me and Darren Murphy, and um, I learned so much there. They really, uh, Kevin taught me patience, relax, you know, don't be in a rush, all that sort of thing. And mm. it really helped me as a jockey. Yeah, it was the best move of my life, really. Gallipoli Prince came along at exactly the right time because you hit a bit of a flat spot around about this time when your weight started to climb a little, and you were actually contemplating giving it away altogether there. Yes, um, it was only really Glibly Prince that was keeping me going and um, I think he, he suffered some sort of injury and I'd about had enough. I, um, I was really, I was riding 53 to 53 and a half kilos but back then the weight scale, the top weight was 54, 54 and a half mm. and only in certain circumstances horses would get 56 or 57 but it never happened often. So I had a very small um, area to pick from for rides, you know, and and I was, I was really, I was about wasting my time, you know. I was, I was a heavyweight apprentice. So I was just come out of my time, and I couldn't get enough momentum to really, you know, get going. So I, um, yeah, I just made the decision. I think uh, it was the middle of winter. I was having a ride at Flemington, and a good friend of uh, our family, Carlo Vadotto, who used to train a few horses. Mm. He was going to Queensland and he said, well, do you want to come up with me? He had a horse that um, had a lightweight Stradbroke chance. I'm taking it up there. Would you come up and ride work for me and get out of the cold? I said, yeah, why not? I'll do that. And um, so mm-hmm. I basically retired. I, I had this go to Flemington. Well, this was my last ride and I'm retiring. Mm-hmm. And I go to Flemington and this horse Julie wins, a horse called Ken Morrison. I'll never forget his name. And um, I come back on the scales uh, a kilo and a half, nearly two kilos over. Um, to be honest, at the time I I I, I just resigned myself to retiring, and I was I was wasted like hell to ride that horse. And I had a bit too much to drink afterwards, and all that sort of thing. And and I had been very diligent with my weight in the in the past, but I did have a weight record. So um, Pat Layla's on the scales and. Pat's uh, very, one of the best stewards we've ever had, but you can't really pull the wool over Pat's eyes very much. And um, <laughs> he, he looked at me and just went, oh, I went, yeah. And we sort of this sort of standoff, and he looked at me and said, um, not running that heavy out there, son. And I went, no. Nah. <laughs> he knew you'd had a big thought, drink. He, he knew you'd had he, a big drink. He, he knew, and I'm thinking mm. this is not going to be good. So, he said, I'll be seeing you after the last. And I got off the scars and said, what are you going to see me after the last for? This isn't going to be good. Mm. So anyway, I'm there twiddling my thumbs waiting for the races to finish and it's dark outside. And I, he comes into the jockey's room and calls me into the steward's room. And um, I sit down, there's only him in the room. And I thought, this is strange. It's not, not normal. And um, he asked me, he said, what, uh, are you having trouble? I said, yeah, look, I'm 
I'm about ready to give it up. I'm, I'm, I'm going to Queensland next week and uh, going to my track work and mm. whatever. He said, that's good. He said, I can see you're doing it tough. And I said, yeah. And he said, would you like to go to Hong Kong? Goodness me. And I knew it was that and I fell off my chair because mm. I'd, uh, my dad was very good friends with Pat Trotter, who'd mm. been going backwards and forwards to Hong Kong for years. And he'd come back with all these stories about how good it was and uh, also about how heavy the weight scale was, which really mm. pricked my ears. Mm. They were riding another 10 pound heavier up there and things. So I always had it in the back of my mind that I'd love to get there, but I was running out of time. and I couldn't really get my profile up to get there then, you know? So mm. I thought that was just a dream that had passed me by. So Pat, uh, Pat said, yeah, well, write me a resume and, um, I'll, I'll send it over for you. And um, with that, and I think many now you might put a good word in for me too. I don't know, but um, I remember asking, what's a resume? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he says, just write down a bit of paper what you've done. Mm. I said, it won't be a big bit of paper, Pat. <laughs> 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 and um, anyway, I did that and uh, I wrote it down. And, uh, I was up in Queensland writing work and, I got a phone call from my parents and Pat Layla had contacted my parents to contact me to say to come to Melbourne, the Southern Cross, to meet the chief start from Hong Kong. Mm. So I got myself on a plane and flew down and um, we had a meeting at the Southern Cross and nothing never gave much away. I just didn't know. They were, they were interviewing jockeys to bring in um, John. It was the first uh, time Hong Kong had brought in club jockeys. Mm. Before in Hong Kong, they were all contracted jockeys to trainers, mm. and um, they had this big investigation in Hong Kong a few years prior, where a lot of trainers and jockeys got disqualified through um, it was the ICAC, which is the Independent Commission Against Crime, mm. and um, so Hong Kong was going to implement now a new system where they have some contracted jockeys. And they're going to test run, pilot run, uh, three club jockeys who could ride freelance. And they were looking for jockeys around the world. And I was basically getting looked at. And I think, at the time, I think uh, three others were, two others I know were Joe Ryan was one. Who got interviewed. I think it might have been A.G. Clark, Gary Clark. Mm. Um, so anyway, with that, I went home, went back to Queensland and started riding work and and someone rung me or someone said to me at the track, you're going to Hong Kong. I went, I haven't heard that, mm. which I hadn't. And mm. they said, no, it's been broadcast on the radio. You've got the job in Hong Kong. Because back then there was no computers and things and whatever. So, mm. oh, gee, this is pretty good. And with that, I got home and I rung up my parents and they said, oh, apparently you've got the job. And then I got a phone call from, from Pat Labor saying you've got the job and I actually got, it was an outstanding contract. They they gave us a, a, a full two-year contract there with um, housing, car, and a guaranteed wage. If you didn't make, meet the minimum wage, they guaranteed a wage. So mm. it was a great, for this, I've just got to go with this. So off I went to Hong Kong. And that started uh, my my second part of my life, changed, changed my life, to be honest. Well, um, you, were there, the high you were there for six years, Dan. You had uh, yes. one year in Macau. Uh, and the yes. rest in Hong Kong. And during that time, the great Jeff Lane, you've already mentioned his name, began yes. his training career. You became his stable jockey, a position you held for some three years, and he became one yes. of your nearest and dearest friends. In fact, I believe um, he's godfather to your son, Darcy. 
That's right. Yeah, I'm proud to say that I um, uh, I was his contractor jockey for three years. Uh, amazing man, beautiful man. He was Jeff. He uh, he just taught me how to conduct myself in a completely different way, off the track and on the track. Uh, um, his experience with the Jeff Lane was the the golden boy of Australian racing. There you go. But um, I realised then why he was called the Golden Boy. He he was an amazing person, Jeff. Just not an amazing jockey, amazing person. And um, he took me under his wing. Well, at first, I was up there riding. He was a steward, actually. He was a steward, and um, I was my start in Hong Kong was a bit like my start of my career in um, Victoria. It took me ages to ride a winner, and as they say in Hong Kong, you've got to have luck. Well, I had no luck at all when I got mm-hmm. there. It was horrible. I was uh, trainers. The trainers up there were, were putting us on horses that were completely unfit and they were up too high in the classifications. And unbeknownst to me, I didn't know why what was happening. But we were getting rides, but they were horrible rides. Um, and anyway, I read a horse one day, and um, they have a rule up there. It's called a running and riding rule, John. Where if you don't ride one to the satisfaction of the stewards, they can suspend you and. That, that particularly happened to me. Um, you see apprentices and that here, so a lot in Australia sometimes get that rule where they're an ill-judged ride, they call it. Mm. We're up there, it's called a running and riding, a running and, it comes under the running and riding rules. And um, I got six weeks uh, suspension for this, this horse this day. So I thought, well, that's the end of my career in Hong Kong because in the rule books it says that if you get caught twice on that rule, you, they kick you out. Mm. And um, so even to this day, I think that rule still sits there. And I, um, I thought, well, no one's going to give me a ride now under that. And I went away to the Philippines for about two weeks, and I came back and uh, got my license back to ride. And with that, the first Saturday back, I had a full book of rides. And Julie won, it, won my first race. Mm-hmm. And then the next week, I had a double, and my career took off there. And I couldn't work out why. But I eventually found out that the Chinese trainers in Hong Kong, and probably all the trainers, they were talking about this club jockey system as the club jockeys were spies for the stewards. <laughs> and that's what they thought of us. And that's yeah. why they were putting us on these horses that were too fat and couldn't win. Yeah. They'd run up to the handicapper and say, you've got to drop my horse down a classification because the club jockey rode it, it must have tried. Mm. And that's how they played the game there. And so... So hence, once they found out that I wasn't a spy, mm. <laughs> they um, they took me they took me in, took me straight under their wing, and uh, I was off and running. You and, certainly um, and, were and, off and running. You won yeah. several Group Ones in Hong Kong. That's right. You slipped over to Macau to win their Derby Group One, and yeah. uh, it was a wonderful six years, Dan. But by was, the by the time you got back to Australia, you were intent on taking out a trainer's license. But at the same right. time, the minimum riding weight in Australia went up and suddenly That's your right. career was reignited and two trainers quickly latched onto your services, Mark Riley and Colin Little. They did, yes. Um, I was. I thought I'd, I'd come home and I didn't think I'd ride again. I uh, uh, After... It's a funny thing. After riding in Hong Kong, the every every race day in Hong Kong is like a Melbourne Cup day, mm. and it was hard for me to come back here and fit back in. I I, I thought oh, I just don't know if I want to do this. But 
as you said, the weight scale had risen, and I thought I was just um, here doing nothing. And I thought oh, I better start riding track work. Six months had gone by, and I thought I'll ride a bit track work. And mm-hmm. and again, Mark Mark Riley came up. And he said, he go see me somewhere. He said, come and ride work for me. So I did that. Then Colin Little, who I had a lot of success for as an apprentice, he said, well, come and jump on some ride. And next minute, I was back riding again. And um, and the weight scale had, had followed me, actually. It, um, I went to Hong Kong for the higher weight scale. When I come back, they'd push the weights up here again, where a lot of other jockeys I rode with as apprentice, the weight scale went against them. That never, Like David Charles, for instance, he was an apprentice with me, and the weight scale went against him, and he had to give it away too early, you know? Some great apprentices. But I was lucky enough to um, get on the back of this rising weight scale. Colin Little has remained a very close friend, in fact, as I mentioned in the introduction, Dan, it was Colin who suggested that I give you a call and uh, put you on the podcast, and I'm so pleased he did. One of the, the, the most loyal and great trainers I've ridden for, another great trainer I rode for, and um, we had a great working relationship where um, we could basically say what we liked to each other, in a sense, when it came down to the horses, which sometimes caused a few arguments and um, uh, a few breakups and, and it would be a kiss and make up again. But um, <laughs> I rode on and off all my career for Colin Little, put it that way. From the time I was apprentice to Caulfield to the day I stopped riding, I was still riding for Colin and rode some of his best horses and we had some great success. Yes, great success. The completion of the Great Southern Sale in Melbourne brought down the curtain on a spectacular sales season for Inglis. In 2019, Inglis cleared an amazing 85% of all yearlings offered a Southern Hemisphere high. Inglis sold 19 of the 30 yearlings in Australia to make more than a million dollars, as well as the only two yearlings to sell for two million or more. Inglis graduates have won 20 individual Group 1 races for the season so far. Inglis ended the sales season as the Southern Hemisphere market leader. Entries for the classic Melbourne Premier, Australian Easter, Melbourne Gold and Scone Yearling sales will be open in early July. You'll find details and entry forms at inglis.com.au. Many of the major stables utilised your services from time to time. Colin Hayes would put you on, Lee Friedman would put you on. In fact, it was Lee Friedman who provided you with the Group 1 winner in 1997 when you rode Knowledge in the Blue Diamond. He drew the car park. Your only hope was to go back and ride for luck. And Dan, you'll be too modest to agree with me, but I've always believed the ride won the race. It was an absolute perler. Well, yeah, it, it worked out that way. Um, it was... Uh it was a long drawn out saga that day because I think at the time um, Greg Hall was stable jockey for Lloyd Williams and he wanted to ride the other horse of Lee Friedman's that was favourite in the Blue Diamond and Lloyd was trying to force him to ride knowledge. Yeah, the other and one was Rose of Danehill then. Rose of Danehill, that's right, mm. yes. And um, my manager was also Rodney Griffiths' manager and um, he was saying, you've got the right of knowledge. And then then I never had the right of knowledge. I had the right, I'd know what was going on. But I remember Rodney Griffiths had a fall on the Thursday at Mornington. And I said to my manager, don't worry about knowledge. 
Griffo's broke his wrist, he won't be riding shoe, but it was favourite in the race, second favourite mm. race. Mm. We'll ride it. And um, anyway, I'm thinking that you know, Griffo won't turn up. And although I'm down on knowledge, Lloyd Williams, I still think, was in the stewards' room before the first, trying to get Greg Hall back onto knowledge <laughs> before the race started. Yeah. So I'm thinking, oh, I don't know what's going on here. But it was, it was quite a, quite a mix-up anyway. And today I get on, I'm riding knowledge. And um, like the time, it drew barrier 17 when the fields come out and a couple of emergency can we go into 16 or 15 or something. And mm. I don't think Lee even bothered giving me instructions from out there. Mm. <laughs> he just said, just do your best, see what happens. And um, I just mm. thought, well, some of the things I'd learned uh, from overseas and what old Kevin Mitchell had taught me was from out there, you're, you're better off saving your carrots. And um, so I went back and just rode it cold and quiet and... Um, which, which we didn't know at the time. The horse had a wind problem too. So I think mm. that's possibly why he won the race. It was the ride of the year, Daniel, the ride of the year. <laughs> you got yourself uh, on a very nice horse in the late 1990s by the name of Al Mansour. Gosh, he was a good little yeah. horse. He won 11 races all up, 11 placings, $1.6 in prize money. You won a couple of group mm. ones on him, the QTC Sires and the QTC yeah. Classic. I remember you winning right. a race at Randwick on him, a listed race, the Brian Crowley Stakes, and I think he That's ran right. a very good second in the Futurity with you on board. He did. Yes, he did. He he, he was a horse, I thought, I don't know what happened or what, 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 why. I won a, a, a group one mile race on a heavy track, the Castlemaine is called, right? I think it was a Castlemaine or something in Queensland. So he's a two-year-old winning a, a mile on a heavy track. I just thought he's like an Australian cup horse. Um, Bruce McLaughlin trained him, and, and I've got to say, Bruce McLaughlin is possibly the most loyalist trainer I've ever ridden for. Really? Yeah. He, oh, amazing man. I never had much to do with Bruce. I knew him, but he was the first horse I rode for him. And I won those three races on him. He came to Melbourne... And he kept into a sprinting program. And at the sprinting program, there those races down the straight that um, they run on Derby Day and things like that. As a three-year-old, he's, I think he's still a three-year-old. And um, he got, uh, I don't know, 51 kilos or 50 kilos. He never got my weight. I think Larry Cassidy rode him. Mm. And I think Larry won two or three races on him. And um, then he got to the, I think, maturity uh, uh, or handicap. I don't know what it was. And... Straight away, Bruce just took Larry straight off him and put me back on, which I, I was amazed after mm-hmm. Larry had won two or three group races on him and uh, Bruce uh, coming back and putting me back on him. And, yeah, uh, I think the horse eventually uh, went to John's size. Yes, he and, did. Mm. And he won an Epson or something? Something like that? Or well, he, won Wild rider, or something. he won a rider, I think. Rider, yeah. yeah. But I thought he was an Australia Cup horse. I really did. Mm. And... I was fascinated to learn that about three years ago, you suddenly felt a great need to sit on a horse again, which in itself was probably good therapy, but much easier said than done. Now, you contacted the renowned horsebreaker Julian Walsh, who's had experience in helping to rehabilitate injured riders. He knows what's required. He assesses each case individually and he actually accompanies his pupil. Now, 
It's right. True to form, Dan, it wasn't going to be any ordinary horse for you when you decided to get back on. <laughs> you picked a Group 1 winner, a horse called yes. Orange County, who won a Rupert Clark when trained by Brian Mayfield Smith. That's right, yes, yes. That was, um, yeah, it was a... Uh that was a very hard thing to do to get back on a horse in more ways than one. Um, I was, I, I felt that I could ride a horse, um, but because I'm under the work color system, getting back on a horse is, is never going to be easy. Um, especially if I hardly walk, but, mm. um, I could go to the, the riding school for disabled, but I, I just, I don't know it was vanity or pride. I just didn't want to do that. I wanted to really ride a horse again, you know? Mm. And um, so, again, a, a good friend of mine, David Charles, he, he stepped in and he contacted Julian Walsh. And um, amazing guy, Julian. He, he, he really, really took time out. Now, Julian Walsh explaining he's the biggest horse breaker in Australia, I think. Mm. And he also is clerk of the course for most meetings. And he said, Sure, come down here. Be careful what I say here because the insurance isn't the So we'll find it. We'll find a horse and we'll find a paddock for you to ride and all this sort of thing. You know? So mm. anyway, he um, he got me on a horseback. I had to be helped on. My biggest problem was getting on a horse. That was the thing, like getting me up onto a horse. Lucky, lucky now to injury, I've actually lost weight. I'm quite light to pick up and throw on. So mm. I um, he got me on Orange County, and and it's amazing what he's done to this horse. He, he, this horse now did. If you just drop the reins on the ground, the horse stops. Mm. And um, that happened one day. I dropped the reins and um, I went straight over his neck and fell off. Did you? But, um, yeah. And a couple of falls off. And don't worry about that. It wasn't all, all plain sailing. Mm. And uh, the junior just picked me up and showed me they're gone again. And um, we got to the stage um, of, uh, well, actually, the first day he took me out riding. We ended up down the drains at the back of Pakenham and these paddocks and didn't realise we were riding for an hour and I, I couldn't ride for another two weeks because I got these sores on my backside like you wouldn't believe. I mm-hmm. didn't realise how long I've been riding for and, and been unconditioned. Julian got me to quite a high level of riding, actually. I was, um, he had me on the lunge rope where in, in a big round yard trotting around and then then he got me um, on his own training track. He'd be on a yearling and I'd trot round with the yearling. So the 12 a minute track of the truck round, but I couldn't quite get the canter right. I just cantering was, because um, I was using a normal saddle and all that sort of thing. Um, but I think now I'll be fine with the cantering. But uh, at one stage there, Julian had me walking in the barriers with two or three yearlings beside me. And I was there one morning and I'm sitting on Orange County with a yearling near the side of me in a set of barriers. And I just honestly could not believe I'd ever be in a position like that again. Oh. Be sitting in, in a barrier, a set of barriers of a yearling either side on a uh, group one winner. I'm thinking, Jesus Christ, my dreams are coming true. <laughs> what, <laughs> what an exhilarating moment for you. It was. It was. And the thing was with Julian, I, I had to stop uh, going there and I, I really appreciate what he's doing. But I was ended up driving down there for like you know, two hours to get up there and back again. and. <sighs> The drive to pack them back, and I'd get there sometimes, and he was really wanting to see, wanting to, wanting me to help me, but he was so flat out working, and um, yeah. uh, I had to stop going because I was really, really taking up too much of his time, mm. and 
what I've been trying to do now is get the Jockeys Association to get me riding. Um, I want to start riding track, not track work, riding uh, the pony at the track. You know, because I'm always said I was interested. I was going to be a trainer, not a jockey. Mm. And um, I'm in the process of that now. Matthew Highland's now the president of the Jockeys Association, and he's going through the roadmap to get me uh, so I can uh, pass his work cover and sign off on it that I can ride a pony. Um, with horses, young horses, trot up with horses and that at the track. Um, and Matty Highland is like a he's like a dog with a bone. I think uh, <laughs> he probably get he might get good results. We tried before and didn't get any result, but I think with Matthew Highland, he may get me back riding on the track. And if that happens, I could possibly be some use to a horse trainer on horseback. So I can't walk around very well, but on a horseback, I can walk anywhere. Yeah, wonderful. Your ongoing rehab involves beach work at Brighton, which you just love, mm-hmm. and you're riding a bicycle three or four times a week, and you're going 10 kilometres in each session. Yes. Um, I, I, I got um, my... I, I'm sort of a bit of an idea, now. I took two of these ideas that would help me walk better. I, 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 got, um, I got a scooter to start with, a kick scooter. I, I got that going. And then um, I thought, well, I'll try a bike, and I got me a conventional bike, and I was riding it around for like a year and a half. But the problem with the conventional bike, I was getting like one, one kilometre from home, or two kilometres, and the wind had changed. I'd ride it back against the wind, and I'd fatigue very quick. So I was having to ring up and say, someone help me get back. I can't get back home. And um, <laughs> So... Yeah, I can ride a conventional bike or ride, but I just can't ride it far enough. I can't get the um, hours into my legs that mm. I wanted to get. So then I've seen um, these electrical bikes, and it so happened that I own a friend of mine, Mark Casey, he had an electric bike that someone had given him or he bought, I don't know, and he wasn't using it. And he said, I've got an electric bike here, but it's one of those ones with pedal. And then the motor kicks in. So I can get on that now, and I, I ride that um, three, four times a week, but I ride it about 10... 10, 12K, I actually ride it to the gym at Brighton Bars and I do my gym workout and ride home again. Yeah. So right. that, that's been a great help. So if I hit a hill or the wind blows too hard, I can then switch it to battery. So mm. it gets me over that hurdle. Cheat a bit. I cheat a bit, yeah. I'm not, I'm not good at getting my legs to the ground quick. That's my problem. So I've got to be very careful picking my path out. Um, yeah. If I, yeah, if I could, I'd be able to get my feet to the ground quick. I could ride anywhere. I just got lucky out the front of my house. I've got a bike path, so it um, yep. takes me all the way to the city if I want to go. Mm. Let's have a quick update on the kids. Your girl Demi, yes, has embarked on a modelling career. Yes, she has. She's actually right now. She's in India. She's three months. She's in India. Um, she did a little bit of modelling here and then she's picked up a contract there. So she's great experience. She's in Mumbai for three months and she looks like um, going on to some interest in England and maybe in Hong Kong. So I might she might be out of home for a while. We're not sure yet. Mm. And your boy Darcy, who early in his life contemplated becoming a jockey, but your injury changed his thinking and he abandoned the idea but he is very close to joining the pro golf ranks. Yes. Uh, my son, I was a bit like my father. My son, I didn't really want him going through the life of uh, suffering, his life away from injuries and things. But I think he was he was showing a big interest in wanting to be an apprentice. 
is was 14 or 15 at the time of my accident. And um, I think the day he seen me in ICU, he abandoned all, all ideas of being a jockey then. Mm. And um, uh, I'm not sure why or what, but he picked up a golf club. And um, He's a natural. My wife, well, my wife told me he's playing golf, and I thought, well, I'm sitting in hospital probably no better place for him to be is on a golf course who's going to take up four or five hours every day. So, and she won't be roaming the streets. Mm. So, that's that. I didn't realize how good he was until I got out of hospital and he, he progressed through the ranks very quick. Um, to now, he's a plus five handicap and um, he's heading off to the States in two weeks. He's playing three major amateur tournaments over there and he's hoping to turn pro on his return. Well, Danny Brereton, in stories like this, I'm reminded of the words of the legendary Captain William Bly when he was cast adrift by the Bounty Mutineers. Several days into his voyage, when his small group of loyal supporters were starting to despair, he said to them, lads, think not of the miles ahead, but of those you've put behind. Dan, you've put many tough miles behind and those ahead don't look as bleak as they once did. Well, John, I'm looking at it this way. I've lived I've lived a great life. I've had an exciting life. I've lived in many countries. And to be honest, this, this has curtailed things a bit, but life is restarting for me again now. And I'm looking forward to what the future holds. Hopefully I'll be able to make some impact back into the racing industry again. Your spirit and your courage, I know, are going to overwhelm a lot of people uh, who will be joining this podcast. And for me personally, Dan, it's been a a privilege and a delight to catch up. Well, I'm only on here if anyone finds himself in the same situation, just feel free to give me a call because I'd love to... um, help anyone. I know what they're going through uh, with this sort of injury. Someone said to me, "It's uh, when I was in hospital, it's the spinal cord injury is the loneliest injury you could possibly have. And it is so true. It's, it's amazing because you just, at the time, you get so much support that because you're stuck in your own little world, the world seems to forget you a bit too. And... Um, you do find out who your true friends are with an injury like this. And I'm lucky that I've got a handful of very, very close friends. Well, I'm very proud and privileged to be on the list, and thanks for your time on the podcast, and we'll be in touch. Thanks very much, John. Great to be there. And this podcast was produced by Supernova Sound. The recent Great Southern Sale at the beautifully renovated Oakland's Junction Complex was an outstanding success. The select weanlings offered on the first two days averaged over $32,000 with a clearance rate of almost 80%. 22 of them sold for $100,000 or more. The broodmares also enjoyed considerable increases across all key indicators. An average of 25,000 up 27%, a median of 8,000 up 45% and a gross of 5.1 million up 15%. Top of the market was again very strong with nine horses selling for $200,000 or more. 
Across four days of selling, the gross was almost 17.7 million, up 11%. It's time for vendors to switch the attention to the 2020 yielding sales and entries will open in early July. Go to inglis.com.au.